What's up, man? Yo, so, what's going on? Hanging out, dude. Well, thanks for coming on today. It, it, we were we just started talking right before the, the recording, so just, it has been a hot minute since we've seen each <laughs> other. I think since like twenty. At the, the most recent one that I remember is honestly twenty fourteen. I, I think Worlds, right? I yeah, don't know if we Worlds, if, right? Mm-hmm. Worlds, either two thousand fourteen or two thousand fifteen. You know, since then. <laughs> What you been up to? How's life, been, man? You're still moving. You're still competing. Like, talk to me. Tell me about it. Yeah, yeah, man. So, you know, powerlifting for me uh, has always been like a lifestyle. Um, so, like, I don't even think of it kind of like as something that I do on the side. It's just like a part of me, you know. So, like, as I continue to stay healthy and uh, make sure, like, my body is doing good, if my body is willing and the mind is willing, then I want to try to do, you know, still try to reach these goals that we have um, in single ply ever since those days, you know, back in 2013, 2014, still trying to reach the same goals that I had since then, you know, all the way up until now, uh, at least powerlifting wise. Um, and then, you know, getting a little bit more into my careers and things like that, um, you know, massaging. So again, I'm a big time lifter, so my jobs kind of revolve around coaching and like the body, you know, massaging, teaching people how to continue to lift at this level for this long of a period of a time um, and things like that. You know, so that's kind of what I've been up to in the last three to five years. Nice, dude. Well, and we're going to get into all of it. I'm going to have lots of questions already. So I want to yes, know, sir. when did you start competing? Uh, I started competing at powerlifting uh, in 2002. 12. Well, the meet that I wanted to do was Collegiate Nationals 2012. So I did like some random meet to qualify, I think in 2011, uh, just to kind of get my feet wet. Um, and I think uh, this was the year where the reigning national champion, I think graduated or something like that. So he wasn't coming back in the 67 and a half weight class. So it's kind of open, you know. So I had some buddies, um, you know, who saw me lifting at UGA and was like, hey, um, you're pretty strong. Would you, you know, join us at Collegiate Nationals? Because they plan to go. And they were like, you know, as long as I'm willing to lift, they have a car, they have a hotel and everything kind of provided, right? So I competed at 2012 Collegiate Nationals in Louisiana, uh, Baton Rouge. And since then, I've just been hooked on it, you know? You've been, I mean, I mean, obviously you're hooked on it. Just if anybody follows your <laughs> Instagram, you're you're constantly posting and constantly coaching, and and just like you said, like you you you've made it into a to a career where you understand that there's longevity in the sport. There's a potential for longevity in the sport, so long as we take care of ourselves. And I remember in 2014, you were giving people massages in their in their in the in the hotel yeah. room. <laughs> yep. <laughs> if, if they were like going to lift the next day, they were like, "Yeah, just go, just go to go see the room, and then this is the room yep. number, and this is where we're gonna go." James got you. It was like, "All right, sweet man." Like <laughs> you were like the guy to go to <laughs> since then, and it's it's, it's kind of cool understanding that you know you understand the way the the, the powerlifter's mind works or the the body, but at the same time, you also understand way the athlete's body moves or the human body moves, right? Like there, the, mm-hmm. we, we see it at, at a high level with, with powerlifting, especially with the powerlifters we're dealing with, but there's a lot of similarities with carrying your groceries to a deadlift, right? And so yep. you have the opportunity to approach everything in a very nuanced type of way, which I think is, is super neat. Uh, what did you get your undergrad in? Um, well, I actually went to, um, 
I was actually going to school for like strength and conditioning at first. Uh, but I took like a break from school and then I actually went to uh, a massage school. So I don't know if you would call that like an undergrad or like a trade school or tech school, if that makes sense. Uh, but mainly because of the same thing that you're saying right now, you know, about longevity in the sport. You know, I always see like a lot, especially like a lot of us, you know, a lot of powerlifters that started with us like some time ago, you know, some of those people don't even lift anymore, you know, because of nagging injuries or pain, pains, you know what I mean? And uh, from the longest time, you know, I just always wanted to continue lifting weights and just being healthy uh, because, you know, Hmong people uh, who, you know, Hmong people, which which is what I am. Uh, our people, when we move to America, we're not really healthy uh, in terms of like the way that we think about how we eat, the terms of the things that we think are important to us, like physical health and mental health isn't truly important for us, you know, and part of what I do is try to bring that um, a little bit into what I do as well, you know, to teach people that it's like a lifestyle to maintain that. And I think um, just having that knowledge base kind of makes me a little bit better massage therapist, especially like if you're a power lifter, right? So it's always just been something that I had a knack for. And, you know, I'm a person that likes to help people out as well. So these things just kind of all connect the dots for me, you know, if that makes sense. For sure. And so I want to know more about the Hmong part. I mean, we're going to continue to talk about powerlifts and stuff like that. But I yeah. want to know, because for a little while there, I think like your your handle on Instagram was like the, the, the Hmong guy or like it was like it was a, yeah. it was part. It was a it's a big part of your your identity. Obviously, it's it's kind of it is part of your identity. Right. So mm -hmm. um, what is where is Hmong? Where are Hmong people from? Yeah, so uh, Hmong people, we uh, we don't have a country. Um, we're actually like tribal or like jungle people that live in uh, the Southeast Asia area. So depending on which mountain, which jungle you're talking about, we could be Thailand, we could be Laos, we could be Vietnamese, and we could be Chinese. You know, just depending on which country we um, we fall under, because we ourselves don't have our, a country of our own. So we're kind of nomadic, you know, we just kind of go where the food's at, where we can sustain our family and life like that. Um, but in 1955, uh, during the Vietnam War, um, the United States went to Southeast Asia to kind of have that Vietnam War, right, to kind of fight against the communists. And they didn't really have a good idea on how to um, battle, you know, uh, the Vietnamese on their own lands, you know, because... They're not used to guerrilla uh, warfare, uh, warfare, so they hired us, Hmong people that live in the jungles, where we can tell them, like, if there's a trap here or if there's things like that that are on the way, you know. So we were able to help, I guess, the Americans during the Vietnam War during that time. And when the Vietnam War ended in 1975, that's where the Vietnamese and I guess the Laos government, um, they had, like, a, an order out there where uh, any Hmong people, uh, was pretty much killed on site. So we were a ethnic group that was just, I guess, trying to survive and trying to run away from that uh, lifestyle. And starting in the 1975s, the 1980s, the United Nations kind of got together and was like, hey, these this group of people is like suffering greatly from an activity that we chose to do, like a war that we chose to get into. So what they did was they started helping the Hmong people that were living in Southeast Asia. And we started moving all around the world, you know. Uh, I think the first Hmong people moved to America in California around that 1975-1976 and in Australia. So you might see some random Hmong people in Australia. You'll see some people in Europe, uh, like my cousin. He's uh, 
a French uh, um, a, from France. So they were part of that group that went over there instead of America. Wow. So that's kind of how Hmong people came to be. So where, where, where did your parents move here initially or were your parents born here? Uh, my parents were some of the kids that survived the Vietnam War that was uh, wow. transferred over. Yeah. Wow. So that, that during that time, it was kind of crazy just being alive, you know, in America. So, so then you, you were born here and then you're able to, how do you find a connection of other Hmong people? And I feel like that's, it's, I really don't know what, like, I feel like it's easy to recognize, um, a Japanese individual, because mm -hmm. one, they have their own country, right? But then yeah. um, what is the culture around Hmong people? And then how do you find that culture here in the States? Yeah, so um, Hmong people, we find, you know, the, the state that we all moved into first, I think, was in California, because that's where everybody was um, flown into, you know, uh, after the war ended. But also a lot of Hmong people actually migrated to, like, Minnesota and Wisconsin. Uh, so, like, for a brief period of time, you know, if you're following me, you know, you might have noticed that I lived in Minnesota from, like, 2015 to, like, 2019, you know, for a brief period, just because the population is really, really dense there. Uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin, they have, like, a lot of good programs for, you know, people who can't speak English, you know, people who are uh, immigrating into the country, you know, and things like that. They have people who can teach you how to speak English or at least interpret for you, you know, in Minnesota. So, Generally, right now, Minnesota, Wisconsin is like the highest uh, po populations among people. Um, and then, you know, as 40 or 50 years later, you know, kind of simulating into the American culture a little bit, you know, we started migrating a little bit. So now you might even see Hmong people in Texas. Uh, I have some friends that live in Texas who are Hmong. Um, you know, me, obviously, right now I live in southeast um, USA, Georgia. Um, and then there's also a lot of Hmong people that live in Massachusetts as well, you know, so like we're kind of like everywhere now, uh, but previously highly concentrated in Minnesota, Wisconsin and California. The traditional American dream, right? It's like we're all of us are just ultimately migrants, right? We all just came here and then ended up dispersing. And then now we have family that's that's family and friends. It's that's pretty much everywhere, right? It's kind of kind of cool. Yep. That's it, man. Just trying to live our lives, you know, trying to do the best that we can. And, you know, as we are on that journey and that path, you know, we'll meet, you know, individuals like you, you know, where we competed in powerlifting meets, you know, like internationally and still hanging out today, you know, talking today. So I find that really, really cool, too. You know, It is really cool to be able to to make those relationships and then see those friendships continue to, to grow. Even if they are distant at times, we can still come together and we have this pretty significant time of our lives that we were able to share. Like it's not, there's a small population of individuals that were able to make it to that, that level. Right. And so mm -hmm. just the fact that we were all there at the same time and in hungry and messing around, having a good time and then lifting, I, I will never forget you were the, they had to like stop the meat because you, you, know, oh, yeah. you do your thing where you like, you put your head against the barbell, you hit it yep. pretty good. And then you got, you started <laughs> bleeding. there's a super cool picture of you. I was looking yeah. for earlier where you're like bleeding in the middle of a squat vascular shit. And I was like, Oh man, that is just looks so cool. But I couldn't find the picture. So if you have that or somebody has it, they should share it. Cause I want to see yeah, that. Man. Man, I might I might need to go back into some of my photos and see if I have it. Yeah, but I do remember that was um, the first meat that I ate. Uh, what is it? Uh, tilapia, like just about every day for like two months. 
And what I didn't know was tilapia makes your skin thin. So when I competed there, I, you know, the first squat, I, I feel like I get, I, I get a lot of nerves. So sometimes like when I, um, like usually my coach Sherman would like headbutt me, but I don't have them there at worlds with me. So I was thinking like, you know, I'll just bang my head against the, the bar, you know, just to kind of get my head out of, out of missing the lift and just trying to get my, just to gather myself, you know? Um, and as soon as I hit, I hit the knurling on the bar and then boom, my head started bleeding. You can see like the blood dripping from my nose at the bottom of the squat as I come back out. That was a pretty epic moment. You know, they got mad at me. They were like, hey, if you intentionally bleed on the bar again, we'll disqualify you. And I was like, well, I didn't intentionally try to bleed. You know? But you know, that was one of the cool moments. Yeah. Oh, that was a really cool moment. It was a really cool moment and, and it was nice to just to, to witness and, and honestly watching you lift, you are probably one of the most technical lifters that I've ever seen. It, yeah. Beautifully, beautifully executed movements on all three movements. Usually you have an athlete who's very good at the, the deadlift or the squat or, you know, they have, they have a specialty, but it just seems that you have such a hyper focus on Every single detail in all three movements. Why? How? Where did it start? <laughs> well, I think, you know, honestly, just competing, uh, especially against people who are stronger than you. So, you know, I always find it that there's like two kind of lifters, right? Like a technical lifter and then just a lifter that can pick up whatever they want, you know? And I, I don't want like my genetics to be a reason why I can't compete with the best of the best. You know, I might not have the best genetics and maybe I might peak out here and there, but at least I understand how to do the movement maybe better than a guy who has the muscles or the genetics to actually lift the weight, you know? So like for me, I always try to dig really deep. Like what are all the little things that make this lift really, really important? So like when you think about like a bench press, I hate the bench press. But I think I can teach it really, really well as well. Uh, but, you know, you think about how far your eye has to be under the bar, how to squeeze the bar with your hands. You know, what is the, the correct way to wrap your hands so you can still get blood flow there, but also maintain like your wrists? You know, how do you get a guy that's going to lift off for you to lift it off perfectly who may or may not understand English? You know, so I think about like all of these little factors that can make your bench press uh, suck. And then try to be ready for all of those factors, you know, like slippery carpet. So now I'm like making my own shoe to make sure like my shoe's not slipping. Right. Uh, you know, so I, I tend to have like a lot of experiences because, again, you know, growing up kind of on the poverty side, when you're like working super duper hard to pay for a plane ticket to Hungary as a college student, you know, when we're like 19, 20 years old, that's a lot of money. That's so a I'm lot like, of I'm, money. I'm trying to zone in on all the things that I can learn from every single meet. Um, so that $2,000, $3,000 that I'm spending is worth it, you know? Um, and I think I just gained a lot of that knowledge from like all of the world trips that we've gone to. And it every time, I'm just trying to get a little bit better, a little bit better. And if I can do everything else better than you, uh, this is actually like a quote that I say where I'm just going to make my 1% better than your 99. Because I often feel like some lifters, um, maybe they're born lucky. So they have like really, really good genetics. And then at the same time that they also work on their technique, those lifters, you know, are really, really hard to beat. Um, and I just hope that maybe even if I'm not as genetically gifted as them, then I'll think about the details a lot deeper than them. 
And obviously, most lifters don't understand the body or try to heal their body in the way that I do. Uh, so at least I'm hoping that these two or three little factors that I got going for me can kind of plummet me into like history, you know, because that's kind of where I'm trying to aim at the moment. So, I mean, you, uh, where, what is what is your goal for the future of your powerlifting career? Like, are, are, and you mentioned in the beginning, but what are we looking at? Are, are we are we are we in gear? Are we are we raw? What, what are we looking at? All of it. <laughs> <laughs> so. You know how like everybody always talk about like who is like the greatest powerlifter all of all time, right? You know, we we always talk about like who we think, uh, and we always talk about the legends, you know. But I always think like powerlifting is so complicated now. You know, back in the day, everybody was wearing like a mini single ply suit, right? Mm-hmm. So if a lot of people say Ed Cone is like the goat, well, how does he compare to the raw lifters today, right? Because nowadays, raw lifting is so popular, you know, do people even think about, you know, the 70s and the 80s and people who are wearing single ply suit? Uh, But then now you even got multiply and unlimited, right? So I think what I'm trying to do for powerlifting is, uh, again, I'm not super genetically gifted when it comes to some of this stuff. So if I understand the skill of powerlifting then it doesn't matter if I do unlimited, multiply, single ply, classic raw or raw with sleeves. All of the technique and all of what I do will apply to all of them. So when you think of a good power lifter, you can be like, well, his raw lifts are pretty competitive as well. You know, I wouldn't say like I've won some national champions raw because I feel like that's where the genetically gifted shine a little bit more than me. But I've always been top five, you know, the best that I can nationally and then even internationally. I think I I could also compete fairly well. But when it comes to single ply, then you add a little bit more factors. Then you think multiply, you add even more factors to that. And if I'm good all across the board, you can't just say, oh, he's only strong because of single ply or he's only strong because of this and that when you're strong everywhere. You know, so for powerlifting, that's what I'm trying to do. And this upcoming year, if I could do, if I could take out Caleb Williams' um, single ply total, which is the highest in the USA right now, I want to try to take his out. And uh, some of the multiply stuff. Um, I think I squatted 804 in a multiply suit at 145, right? The Holy rules, obviously, shit. the rules for multiply is, you know, maybe less strict than the IPF, but, you know, we played by the rules that day and I hit an 804 squat and the world record, I think is like 820. So I'm literally like right there during my first multiply meet ever, you know? So I think with every different division of powerlifting, whether you're raw or multiply or unlimited, there's like a certain level of skill a certain level of grit you know you because there's a lot of pain involved with equipped lifting and some people can't handle some of the pain you know of blood and the suits like ripping you apart so i find it that i thrive in that you know i thrive in trying to be a student of the sport and being good at all forms and all aspects of it so like when you truly think of who you are the greatest you know maybe i might not be in anybody's goat conversation but people can't deny that uh, what I do as a power lifter and what I bring to the table is not valuable, you know? So at least in that end, that's where I want my name to be in power lifting. That's a, that's a hell of a goal, man. I think that's, it's a, 
it's a unique goal. I feel like usually a lot of athletes are like, oh, no, I'm, I'm only raw. I'm only single ply. Like, I don't want to play between – and then even the multi – the multi gear, and I don't, I don't even know what unlimited is, and I would like for yeah, you to it's exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's something new, like in the last year or so, where uh, you know you thought like multiply was the end all be all, but then yeah. un, the banded uh, uh, the banded shirt started coming out. So like you see a guy like a guy that weighed one ninety eight bench press eleven hundred pounds to a pause with his band shirt in the unlimited division, and you're just like. What? What is this, right? <laughs> You're like this guy single plies like maybe four or five hundred, and he puts on an unlimited band shirt. And he's doing eleven hundred. What are we doing now? Are we just building tractors for bench shirts, right? <laughs> exactly. Like, like what? Like what are we doing? What are we doing? Like what? What is the point? Is it? I I think I like the idea between raw and then the single ply. Like those two, I feel like it's like I think I honestly think that single ply is a little is much more technically. Um, mm-hmm. requires much more technical uh, um, ability than the raw lifting. Though. The raw lifting, like if you if you end up like your bench, if you end up like leaning a little bit too far back towards your face on on the on the ascent, then it doesn't really like you can grind it out, right? If if you do that in mm-hmm. a shirt, that that barbell is coming to your face, right? Like, yeah, exactly. This, this very small, um, fine tuned. Uh, level of, of lifting inside the, the gear world or inside the, the, the single ply world, it, does it get more complicated in the, in the, in the multiply suit and then even more in the, in the unlimited? So I think, you know, this is, this is the way that I think of like every division. I think like raw with sleeves, I think it tests your genetics more. So usually the guy with the better genetic who also works hard, we usually end up winning like a raw with sleeves kind of a competition. Then when you start thinking about single ply, what is the the extra factors in single ply? It's the, the gear and the suit and the technique and the margin of error, right? Like what you're saying. So when you think about pain, like getting a knee wrap done with a venture kind of eating at you in the single ply, it adds like a smaller margin of error a little bit of pain, and your technique has to be more on point. And then when I think of multiply, because I've done multiply, I think multiply is just the guys that are a little bit more um, crazy on the gear side where, you know, because single ply, there's like a mixture between like sane and insane sometimes, right? Because, you know, we do get a little crazy when we get into our single ply. And I think when you move on to multiply, that's where you have to turn on the craziness to another level. Uh, because again, you're putting on so much more weight. So you have to be confident that you can handle that much weight without breaking. Because it doesn't matter if you got a five, six layer squat suit. When you pick up 800 pounds, 800 pounds is 800 pounds. You know what I mean? I could, my spine feels it. My freaking hands and everything like feels every pound of that mark. So I think in order to be good at multiply, you got to be maybe the crazier of the gear lifters in single ply. And then since I haven't done unlimited, I can't really tell you, but I could tell you that unlimited is probably, you know, maybe even the crate, you know, even more out of this world than even multiply is. Just imagine me, 198 holding 1100 pounds in your hands. That's yeah, still I mean, 1100 pounds over your face. I mean, that is, that, I mean, that's insane. Still impressive, right? It's still impressive. You know, but because again, you and me, we don't really do it. It just seems like, you know, alien to us, you know, at least for me at the moment. I might dig into that a little bit more. 
I like to master every division. Um, and right now, I think because you mastered single ply, I feel very confident in single ply. Um, it makes neat, you know, raw with wraps or raw with sleeves really, really easy. You know, when we go to a raw meet, it's like, what are we really doing there? We're just freaking <laughs> relaxing, you know, right? <laughs> For sure. But but single ply, multi ply, you know, it. You gotta, you know, I. It, it's hard to explain, but it like your life flashes before you a lot more in equipment, and I think because of that, it makes you so much better in all the little aspects. So when we go back to something that's you know, a little bit less technical, like raw, it's like, well, what is this? I'm used to picking up 600 pounds. What is a 500 pound walkout now? You know, or like I'm bench pressing, right? I'm like, oh, I've held 400 pounds in my hands before. So my raw max isn't really that scary, you know? So like in my head, there's less fear in raw, but in the other divisions, I think you got to be a little bit more um, BA, if you know what I mean, not trying to cuss. So yeah, a little bit more BA. That's, that's a very accurate assessment. And I think that the gear lifting, like I remember that I haven't, I haven't lifted in a single ply in a little while, but the closest I've gotten is wraps and there is an intensity that has to be there in order to approach those level of weights versus in, in, in your raw lifting, you can, you know, you can just slide on your sleeves and you can just kind of hang out and all right, it's like, I guess I'll take my next yeah, set. You know? we're, but, we're like freaking drinking beers, you know, at a raw meet and we're like, chill, right? <laughs> seriously, like there are people are yeah, really right? like the whiskey and deadlifts thing and like drinking right? beers and shooting the shit. But with gear, like you're fucking on and I'm sorry, I'm cussing, but, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. but you, you're, you have to be on for that kind of stuff, man. There, yeah. There is no mess ups. And I think it makes you even a better coach because of it as well. It's like, you can see yep. all those fine details of somebody's foot, just a little bit too externally rotated. You can see somebody's knee caught that having some valgus in it. And you're like, okay, we, this, and, and this is how we fix it. Right. Not only do you know, yep. not only do you have the eye for it, but you also know this is the solution for this. And it's usually a fairly quick solution. And sometimes it's, it's biomechanical. You just got, you know, you're just changing some, some form stuff or it really is like a, a dominance of a specific tissue. And I think those, those um, faults are exacerbated inside of gear. Yep. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, and, you know, it's not even just that too. You know, I tell people that there is a, like a, a pain threshold, you know what I mean? And you're like, again, if you're wearing a suit that's pretty tight, you know you're going to do warm-ups in them. You know you're going to get wrapped in them. You know you're going to put on the full suit and do at least three attempts on the squat. And then the very next thing that you do is you put on a tight shirt that starts eating at your chest and your arms too. And then you have to get into your deadlift suit, which also eats again at the same muscles that was destroyed by your squat and your bench. Like, how do you survive all that, you know? So there's also, like, a pain threshold, you know? Like, if you watch, like, Fedosinko, you know, one of the best powerlifters oh. ever. It got to the point where he just deadlifts raw because it's just too much pain, right? <laughs> he squat like 700, you know, in his suit, bench like four, almost 500 in his bench. He's like, you know what? I already won. So I'm just going to deadlift raw. There's no reason for me to put on the suit and destroy my body some more, you know? That's for sure. So, where, where, where do you see geared lifting going? Like the single ply stuff. Now that the, the raw stuff is so big, where do you see gear going? Man, I I think gear is going to grow in a different way. So it's not going to die 100% because there's still going to be lifters like me uh, that's going to try to do just about everything. Um, 
But I do think that the level of competition and the amount of gear lifting is going to drop a little bit until the raw lifters start getting hurt. When the raw lifters start lifting a little bit more and they're not really thinking about their technique so much and they're not really thinking about um, all the little mechanics and they just continue to get stronger and stronger and stronger and not realize like what all of those little things are going to do to you in the long run. When the pain starts adding up, what do most people have? Hip pain, knee pain, put on a squat suit, knee wraps, fix you right up, right? Like yeah. you're not, obviously it doesn't fix you, but you can still squat and you can still deadlift with a little bit of knee pain if you have the extra gear. It almost feels good, you know, especially like if you got like a shoulder, like a shoulder impingement just a little bit. When you put on that bench shirt, it feels great because all the pressure that the shirt is putting onto the shirt and not so much in your joints. Uh, so I think when the raw lifters start become really, really strong or they reach a part where their age and their number hits, they're going to start thinking about equipped lifting a little bit more in their lifting career. So maybe further in their 20s, early 30s, maybe even 40s, uh, just in my opinion. That's where I kind of see how raw or equipped lifting is going to grow, you know, kind of more in the later generations and more as people continue to get strong and get hurt. Um, but it's hard to beat raw lifting because it's easy. You can you can do it by yourself, you know. Single ply, you know, I, I can do it by myself. But I know I like it way better when I have three guys with me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, <laughs> and yeah. multiply, you can't even do it by yourself. If you try to do it by yourself, you're pretty much gonna kill yourself. You know. So you might as well. You know. That's why, like, if you think about multiply and single ply, we always got my clubs or we always got my groups that we try to train with because it's just so much easier. You know, with everybody. But raw, it's easier. You could do it by yourself. You don't really need too many people to help you out. So I think raw lifting is probably gonna continue to to uh, thrive. Um, but equip lifting, you know, we're going to go through some hoops and it's going to take people, I guess, who continue to do single ply and multiply and unlimited and the kind of person that they are and how they represent the sport. That's going to make it, you know, appealing to other people. So we can only hope, you know, that equip lifting continues to grow. I think what, uh, what's pulling a lot of people to the raw lifting as well is the, is the fact that they're winning some, some money now, right? Not only just, mm -hmm. um, they're, not only are they winning any from meets, but they're also uh, pulling a, a quite a bit of a, a a platform from from social media, right? Because that, that that's yeah. the whole thing. And if you go to a USAPL meet, they're they're like super flashy. And of course, you have Gino out there yelling and making yeah. it a whole thing, and it's it's a fun time, right? It's a tr it's attractive. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I see that same level of intensity or um. That same level of intensity with with the IPF, uh, I don't think that they would change the way that they're looking. If they're wanting to get IOC approved, then I don't, mm -hmm. or they, I guess they are IOC approved. But if they're wanting to continue to grow in that space, then I don't think that we would ever see that. Do you think that that's going to be a bad thing for for weightlifting or for powerlifting? Uh, what was the question again? Uh, do Do you believe that, or do you, how do you feel about the IPF's rules? on the growth of powerlifting, specifically geared powerlifting? Okay. So um, I think single ply wise, um, it's hard to argue with them because they're still probably the biggest federation that houses uh, single ply lifters. Uh, because usually at this point, um, outside of the IPF and USAPL, you know, a lot of people just either are raw or multiply. You know, you don't have single ply lifters anymore. 
So I think the IPF, because of what they're doing, may or may not take away from some of the equipped lifting, because I can tell you that, you know, some of the new bench rules that they got, it's going to be way harder for people who are equipped to apply those rules, you know, because part of the reason why we even bench like that in the first place is because of the bench shirt, right? So now you're going to limit that. What does that do to the equipped lifters? Um, So I guess that is something that we're going to see in the future and see how some of these new rules like affect the overall worldwide single ply lifters. Um, But I hope, I hope it doesn't die, but you know, right now it just kind of seems like they're catering more and more to the raw lifters. Uh, So I do think raw lifting is probably going to take over for a while, you know, and I just hope that because the IPF has been such a big, um, you know, promoter and supporter of single ply lifting that, if it does get IOC recognized or anything like that, that they continue with tradition. But for all we know, you know, it might even just swap over to raw, you know? So that is my hope. I hope they continue to support single ply because that's what I love. That's what I, how I got started. Uh, single ply is the midway between multiply and raw. So, you know, it kind of just let me swap between the two and just think of powerlifting in the way that I do. So I really just hope that people could continue to push on that good spirit, you know, and IPF is where it's at at the moment. And until it's not, then, you know, whatever they think is best, I'll probably just go with their decisions, you know? I guess, I guess time will tell, right? Yeah. Time will tell. What is your relationship with, with injuries in the last decade of, of lifting at this point? Okay. So I've never really had any uh, major injury. Um, I've had a couple of injuries that set me back just a little bit, uh, but it was never to the point where like I couldn't lift for an excessive amount of time. Um, I think something that I've learned through equipped lifting, especially like if you're squatting, is um, you gotta be able to not miss because if you are training at a gym where there's people who've never seen you lift before and you're putting on like this massive amount of weight, a lot of people are gonna get freaked out by that. And I often found it that a lot of the injuries that I've occurred over the years were from me squatting and lifting to the level that I lift, but certain people not thinking that you can do it. So then they'll grab the bar early or they'll do something like that. And I mean, I'm picking up four times body weight. You know, if you just blow under the bar, I'm going to tip towards the other other side, you know? So imagine a guy just grabbing it and doing this, you know, with 600 plus pounds on my back. Holy shit. So I've occurred... I've occurred some injuries because of those situations. And um, most people don't know this. And I think, you know, in the later years of powerlifting, a lot of people started seeing some of the things that I do, but I'm also like a break dancer. Mm -hmm. So for as long as I've been break dancing, I've also been powerlifting. And uh, in 2016, uh, me and some of my friends was uh, breaking in a bar. And there was this guy that had two beers in his hand, and he was so excited that we were going to break dance, right? And he kept doing this, and then the beer kept sliding off of his cup into the dance floor a little bit. And then my thumb slipped mm. on some of the alcohol. So if you look, I actually have a broken right thumb. I don't know if you see that joint right there. Yeah, I sure do. See how it's sticking out? And then this one's just like completely straight. Oh, no. Yeah, so... Ever since 2016, like, I think I deadlifted 600 pounds in 2015 during Czech Republic when I was there. 
And the following year, right after that, I freaking broke my thumb. And then my deadlift has been stuck at that range for the last seven or eight years. Um, so now that I'm, you know, doing a little bit more USPA stuff, they're using, you know, it kind of helps with my thumb a little bit because my hands are smaller and the deadlift bar is a little bit thinner. So that actually ends up making it a little bit easier um, with my broken thumb. Nice. You hook grip. So those are, yep, I hook grip now because of this. Because again, seven years in the making, I, I haven't gotten more than 600 pounds, you know, so Damn. I had to change something. So yeah. And that has switched, the thumb. Yeah, right. Has switching the grip help? <laughs> Uh, I would say currently right now it has, but I mean, dude, hook grip has been like a three year process. You know, it's kind of like on and off, just really, really working on my hook grip until it becomes better than my mixed grip, you know? So uh, the 29 millimeter bar was kind of like a, a struggle for a little bit, but now that I'm just using a 27, you know, for a lot of my lifts, it's a little bit easier on my thumbs. Um, and I think going forward, you know, it kind of just lets me know as a coach as well that, you know, littler people are going to have trouble hook gripping on a thicker bar, you know, so it's kind of interesting. That's a pretty good track record in like no. for as much as you're lifting that in, that's a really good track record. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, shoot, imagine just pulling 600 pounds consistently for the last seven years with a broken thumb, you know, and I haven't made any gains until maybe this year. So I'm hoping for more than 606 at a meet now, you know, because again, I think I got my, my thumb technique and hook grip technique kind of down uh, and everything's kind of coming together. So maybe this year, you know, along with me just balancing my life a little bit more, maybe this might be a year where I hit some of the goals that I've been chasing after for 10 years, you know, and if I don't, it doesn't matter, you know, as long as I'm having fun with it, I think that's what's most important, you know. How do you feel the hook grip has affected you outside of just the grip itself like hook grip versus uh switch grip so honestly i think when we first started powerlifting everybody was doing mixed grip and hook grip wasn't really oh, yeah. like a um like a big thing right but i wish i would have started it like 10 15 years ago uh, because when you think about a deadlift and you're mixed gripping right the moment you turn your hand this way you're using different muscles. So like your lat, like when I hold, when I hook grip like this, both of my lats are flared up. But the moment I turn my hand this way, this crunches my left lat. So now my right lat is getting spread and my left lat is getting uh, crunched or, you know, contracted, right? And you're always, now, now my back is like this, right? My right lat is always wider, but my left lat is always um, stronger which is kind of weird, but I think I developed that little imbalance from mixed grip all of this time. And I even developed like a little bit of uh, an issue with my Terry's minor major and lat on the left side too, where it's not anything major that has stopped, but every time I deadlift, if it's a little off, I'll feel that pull or I'll feel my chest pull, you know? So I have to be really careful in my technique uh, all because of those little factors, you know? Um, but now that I'm hook gripping, both of my lats are getting the same amount of work done. Um, it balances out the imbalances a little bit and even, you know, just allowing me to isolateral my left side a little bit and let it, you know, kind of spread out a little bit more. So I'm doing like more lat pulls on, the, on my left lat just to nice. kind of even out the 10 years of mixed grip, you know. Uh, but that's pretty much the only difference that I've noticed. Now that's a pretty significant difference for longevity, right? If, if your goal is longevity in the sport, I mean, 
it's definitely something that I think we should we should promote a little bit more. I mean, it does hurt. It does take time, like you said, three years process. It hurts that that tendon and especially that that pressure on that thumb if you're not used to it. But once yeah. you once you get used to it, I think that the the biomechanical differences are insane. Like are a lot healthier for the long term. Uh, I am interested in how you write training. Who do you write uh, your own training? Does somebody else like, or, or do you write your own? Yeah, I, I write my own, and then I have like a uh, I have my actual coaches, you know, who's been with me like all of this time. Like usually, what I just have them do is review what I write. I think I'm a pretty decent coach, but I know there's a limit to what I can do for myself because there's always going to be a little bit of bias in it, you know. So like I like for like Sherman Lefford and Josh Rohr and a couple of my other friends to just kind of like take a look at some of the things that I write and see if it if they think it makes sense for where I'm at in my journey. Uh, but for the most part, uh, I write my programs a lot myself because if anything bad happens, I don't want to blame anybody. You know what I mean? Uh, I know like a lot of the times as coaches, you know, when our lifters don't get where they need to be, we feel really, really bad for them yeah. because maybe we feel like there was something that we could have done better. Um, and as a person myself, because I'm so hard on myself, um, and to the level that I lift at, you know, when I would almost argue that the higher level of an athlete you coach, the more stress you have as a coach, because again, you have to be so aware of so many different factors, you know, to make this guy the best of the best. Right. Um, so I know like there's a lot of pressure into coaching a, a lifter at my level. So I think I just take away a lot of that pressure by just writing it myself. And then having the coaches and people that I trust review what I write. And if I like what I'm doing, if my lifts are getting better, if my technique is getting better and I'm not getting hurt, um, then that is the route that I want to continue to go, even if I know I could be stronger in a different way. Uh, obviously, you know, I can muscle up the weight a little bit as well. But how many more of those max out, I'm going to muscle up the weight and really, really pull what I can truly pull with bad technique do I have until I'm just done, you know? Yeah. So I want to always try to maintain good technique as I'm getting stronger as well. You know, even though I had the potential to do way more than, you know, I'm doing now, but it's always good to be smart and think of the long term. You know, I was going to ask how you, what did your exercise selection look like? Um, and I, you kind of answered that question, but what are your, like, how do you uh, choose your accessories around, um, around your specific movements? So I think, uh, when you start putting around like 85 to 95% of like your max on a bar or like an RPE eight and a half and above, like on the bar, I think most people can kind of tell like as they lift where their weaknesses lie. And when I think about the exercises that I want to pick, because, you know, the stronger you are, the more weights you're going to put on the bar. Uh, the weaker you are, the faster you're going to get to your top sets. So usually for me, I tend to have like newbies do a lot more sets. Uh, but for lifters like us, who's taking like two hours, maybe, maybe even almost two and a half hours just to squat. <laughs> I, right. I often think if this is their weakness, you know, how many accessories can they truly focus on that can help their lifts? So for my squats, I have this little thing where right when I hit the bottom of the squat and I'm coming out of the hole, my chest kind of caves in very slightly, and that only happens sometimes. And that sometimes is a factor that you have to include when you're competing. So even though I can hold up 650, squat it perfect, three attempts out of one, 
I'll mess up two times and then one of them I'll just smoke it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So then I will think, all right, if I if my squat is weak at that point, you know, what kind of accessories can I do? That means my back is weak. Now I need to do more shrugs. I need to build a bigger platform. So like when I am coming up during that sticking point, it's not my muscles that's lacking, right? So automatically if my chest is caving down, I think I need to build more core. So I need to do more uh, ab work that mimics what I'm doing with the squat. Or I'm building the muscles that make that motion stronger. So if you're caving down, if your back is just stronger, if your core is just stronger, maybe you would have been more upright and you would smoke 650, two, maybe three out of three versus just one out of three, you know? So I, I take a lot of that into consideration on like how my body just shifts a little bit. Anybody can do 135 or their first warm up perfect, but the goal is to make their max look like that warm up, right? So anytime your technique deviates from that, all of the accessories go towards that one weakness. So I try to do a lot of shrugs. I do a lot of face pulls because usually my upper back is really weak. I think that's a genetic weakness of mine. My lats, my um, rear delts and things like that. I might have big traps, but that's the only thing I got going for me. So if I'm missing everything else, you know, with the back, I have to hammer that because that's what's going to cause me from not hitting the bigger weights with the squats. You know, my deadlift is kind of the same. I tend to like fall forward just a little bit. And I think a lot of that is because of my rear delts. You know, my those little muscles are just so small and weak now that when I'm trying to reach that next level, I don't have that uh, support. So now I'm doing a lot of face pulls and shoulder work. Uh, just about every day, like the way that I do my abs, um, in order to battle those weaknesses. So with anything, if you have a weakness in one lift, in my opinion, it's going to be a weakness that that are going to show on all three lifts. So if you got a weak back, it's also going to show during your bench press. uh, Because if you don't have a stronger or bigger back, you know, what are you really pushing away from? You know, you're pushing nothing with nothing. So uh, same thing with your abs, right? If your abs are weak and you're folding over during your third attempt squat, maybe when you get to your third attempt bench and third attempt deadlifts, you'll fold as well because your abs just can't hang on to the weights, right? So I often think a lot about my accessories and the way that I fail. I like that. that, that that's a cool, it's a cool note. Usually I look at it like, oh, this is only weak in this area, so it's only going to affect this movement. Like I, I'm rounding here, so I probably got to have to work this specific range uh, to get better at this thing, not that mm-hmm. it would translate into the other movements, but it makes sense. It would travel into the other movements. I'm still yeah. me in those other movements. Like it, there is yeah. no, like I'm still the same guy, you know, that's a good note. Yeah. So like I tell a lot of people that powerlifting uh, has like certain themes. There's like certain areas that you're going to need it for, for it to be strong, no matter what, because all three lifts require a lot of, Uh, support from these muscles. Now, obviously, when you bench press, the muscles that get involved the most are that is what makes you strong is going to be like your shoulders, your arms and your chest, right? But what about like your grip strength? You know, like, what about the muscles that are just holding onto the bar right, in your fingers? What about your leg drive? What about your calves? Because your feet is going to be on the bench, right? And something has to push into the floor. And if you ain't got no calves, that's going to affect your leg drive and make your bench maybe that much worse than it could have been. And that's only because you don't think you're using your calves when you bench press. You see what I mean? So I think when you think of what makes you weak and all the little factors 
on like the calves for the bench press, which is something that people will probably never think. You know, if you just train your calves because maybe you have some issues with your deadlifts or your squat, it would also help your bench. If you got a weak back and you start building it because you have a weak deadlift, it would also make your bench press and squat easier. Abs, every lift use abs, every grip, every lift use grip strength, you know? So you got to think about all of these things and make sure that it's not just strong uh, vertically, it's also strong horizontally, and it's also strong from the floor going up, you know? So you think about all those planes and you think about every area of your body on how it can maintain those positions, and then you just strengthen them, you know? Because you know what you're doing. You know how you feel when you're at a meet, when you squat, bench, and deadlift. So how do you minimize all of the reasons why you're going to miss? And then all of my accessories revolve around that. So when you have a novice list, lifter, and, and, and I, I assume you take novice lifters as, as athletes uh, sometimes? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yep. so when, you have a, when you have a new lifter who's coming into the sport and, and just learning the, the three movements, how are you able to communicate all this really good information to somebody who – maybe it doesn't have that proprioception yet. Like how, how do you communicate it well? You know, I think I'm kind of old school. Um, I like, so what I, what I like to do is like, especially like as a coach, um, as we're doing the workout and as like we're lifting, I like to get to know you a little bit as well, because I think your personality uh, plays a role in how you take the information that I'm going to give you. If you're the type of person that can handle a lot of information at the same time, then maybe I will give you like two, maybe three things to work on. If you're the type of person that learns slow, then I'm only going to focus on one thing and I'm going to have you do that one thing over and over and over and over again for like maybe a month or two. And then when that becomes so easy, we'll move on to another thing. So I think... Getting to know your lifters, understanding their personalities on the kind of information that they can intake. You know, some people, they can learn by reading. Some people, they need a video or some people need to be there in person with you. And you have to, like, think about which one of those about you that you can attack or how to handle the newer lifters. Because newer lifters, they don't know what they're doing and they don't know. We don't know what their weaknesses are neither. You know, it could be their equipment. It could be. The fact that they just don't know how to activate their abs or maybe they just don't, maybe they're not setting the rack height good enough. So every time they're picking a weight from a squat, it's always on their tippy toes and they wonder why their squats hard all the time, right? So I think with newer lifters, depending on the person, you want to get to know them a little bit. And then from there, you can decide one thing, two things, and then just really, really have them hone it down little by little because I believe in longevity. You know, I think a lot of people when they start, especially if they're fairly genetically gifted, you know, they like to just lift heavy from the get go and just continue to push that forward. But again, how many times do the greatest power lifters have at the platform before they all stopped? You know, most of most of these guys stopped after 10, 15 years, you know, so like if I don't want the newer lifters to end at the 10, 15 year mark, then I have to teach all of the things that I think are important outside of just lifting for those guys. So like even the stretch routines, I'll stretch right along with them and I will count and I'll tell them, this is how you need to stretch. This is how your body needs to feel before you get started. These are all the mobility stuff that you need to do. Your body's not hurting now, but I'm going to teach it to you anyways, because at the very beginning, if all you know is how to stretch and how to do mobility stuff and keep your body in shape, the workout itself will, um, 
you yourself as a person can go through the workout and you will learn as much as you can without having to worry about pain, having to worry about like restrictions and things like that. So when I think of new lifters, those are the things that I think about and I try my best to be aware of. You come in with so much information. Like you, you, you come in with a lot of a lot of background, a lot of understanding. Because you've you've done it yourself. Like you, you've thought about all those little things. And so, any client that is going to come to you, they're 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 doing all right. You know, they have, they have, they're in yeah. good hands. Um, they might yeah. not know it initially, but all those little things. Like, where do you set your rack height? Like. We're going to set it right here. We're going to have both feet underneath. This is how we're going to do it and how we're going to do it. I think that's some of the most important parts in compared. Like, yeah, the the movement itself is important because that's that's the ultimate goal. But all the little things that lead up to it and then after the fact matter also equally an equal amount, right? Like Mm -hmm. what, what do you, I want to know about your, your mobility routine post workout. How much time are you spending? Like, what do you, how much time are you spending? (laughs) Cause I mean, I swear your deadlift, your hips are like at the bar, you know, just, yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. It's beautiful. People don't know like how much time I spend, you know, that's like all the stuff that people don't see, you know, like, (laughs) I tell people all the time, like when I'm working on their quads and their hips and stuff like that, and they feel how much pain it is. And I'm just like, that feels good, doesn't it? And they'll be like, nah, it feels terrible. And I'm like, no, it feels good because you're building all of this muscle. And this is your body telling you that you need to learn how to break it apart or you're going to, or you're going to get hurt. Right. And every time I'm hitting these 600 pound deadlifts, you know, 600 pound squats, my body is just wrecked. So usually um, before I hit like a squat or a deadlift, I would always ask my body, all right, this is the weight that I'm going to prepare for in a day or two. You know, sometimes I even need two days of mobility in order to, to, to be in the shape that I need to hit a certain weight for deadlifts and squats. Uh, so what I ask myself is, all right, if I'm going to squat, I'm going to deadlift and my glutes tight, if my quads tight, hamstrings, or if my grip, if my forearms, you know, are sore from massaging all the time. What do I have to do in order to survive this squat or this deadlift workout? And then I loosen it all up. And sometimes some muscles like your quads and your glutes, sometimes they take two days to loosen up. Sometimes you have to break it down just the first or two layers. And then you can get into the deeper, littler muscles uh, after the big muscles has uh, calmed down and recovered from the the work that you've done already. You know, And, and that's just, again, the hips, you know. So I start a couple of days early and I pretty much roll through all of the motions. Sometimes like I'll go into my sumo stance and I'll put like a little lacrosse ball, like right on my hip where I'm kind of coming down and then I'll put a bench there and I'm like, I feel pain there. So what if I just did my deadlift technique and put the ball where the pain is and then start massaging it there? So then I start developing like really unique ways to loosen up my body with like lacrosse balls and barbells and um, benches. So I have a bench with me everywhere I go. I always try to have a bench so I can, I know if I want to roll out my glutes or my hamstrings, I I can do it, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but to the level, you know, and then you, you think about like shoulder mobility as well. People's always got shoulder pain in the front somewhere or like their neck is off or something like that. And, Every time I bench press, I also think about all of those little muscles and how I can dig into that. So I got like uh, four different level balls. I got the regular, you know, I got the softball, the lacrosse ball. Then I got like a 
a lacrosse ball that's a little smaller and then i have even two smaller ones to dig into like the fingers because now we're getting super technical right yeah the little baby muscles here for the little balls and then you know as it gets bigger it's a little bit bigger of muscle every time Uh, so i pretty much just try to flush my body out the best i can um before i even hit the squats and then pretty much after i squat or deadlift my body is trashed again so i got to do the same routine in about a day or two in order for me to bench and or kind of go on into the later sets you know like so i think my mobility stuff is um kind of hectic and i know people can't do it which is why i became a massage therapist now you don't need my brain you don't need to know my knowledge to loosen up your body yourself you can just book a session with me and then I could do all the work for you. Um, and you can just relax the best that you can, obviously, you know, when you're an athlete, you're hurting. So (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say a lot of those massages, there's not much relaxing going on. I can, I'll breathe as much as I can, but Ooh, that, that stuff just, you can really get into some small tissue there. Um, Yeah. I mean, you all the way from, yeah, you know, you have the forearms that you can use, but then when you start getting into those, those small spaces like the intercostals, I mean, you're using pinpoint yep. pressure and that shit hurts. Hurts. <laughs> exactly, man. There's and I'll no- tell people too, it's not that I'm touching this muscle that it hurts. It's the fact that you're training so freaking hard that this muscle is already hurting. Yeah. And when I touch it, you just feel what you're really yep. feeling, you know? Because sometimes, like, what I'll do is, like, especially when people have, like, left shoulder pain, I would touch the same muscles on the right. And I'd be like, see, I'm doing the same movements. I'm even using more pressure on this side, but you're not screaming. That means that you didn't do no damage to that side, right? So when I work on the left side and they feel all that pain, I'm letting them know, like, it's not me that's hurting you. It's you that hurt you. And I'm just showing you you know, what you can kind of do and the kind of pain that you have to feel just a little bit in order to feel better, you know. Uh, But I do think there has to be a balance. Uh, The better you get at lifting, the better your mobility routine has to be. So like if you're a newbie, maybe you can just get away with stretching. Maybe the foam rolling isn't even going to be a big deal until a year into your training. But when you're 10 years, 15, 20, and you're level of mobility and recovery is not increasing as well, your lifts are going to drop. When you're thinking about like your sleep and your nutrition, if they haven't leveled up to the level that you're lifting, your lifting is also going to drop. So again, everything kind of revolves around you as a person, not just what you can do in the gym. We We love to lift weights. That's the easy part. Now we have to do the hard part, which is all the stuff that we're not good at. The eating, the recovery, the mobility, the mental clarity, you know, the balancing your life, your career, your families and all that stuff, you know? How do you, how do you do it? I mean, it sounds like you, I, mean, <laughs> I know you said like, this is, it is, it is your lifestyle. It is part of mm-hmm. it is you, but how do you do how, like there, this is hours and hours of time spent working on yourself. How do you yep. find and make the time? Ooh. So man, that's a really good question, man. But honestly, I do mobility work in every little crevice that I could find between like family and work and stuff like that. So like I work for like a chiropractor's office as well and I'll bring some of my mobility tools there. So like sometimes I'll have like 10, 15 minutes in between like some of the massages I do or like I'll have like a 30 minute lunch 
And during that little bit of time, I'll be like, all right, I know I have to loosen up both of my shoulders in order to bench press tomorrow. And I know I'm also massaging about six or seven people. So I need to get my arms all the way down as well. How do I get a jump start on that? So later on when I, you know, when I'm busy doing other stuff that I'm at least good enough. So then I'll work on my shoulders a little bit for that 15 minutes that I have that break. I'll add a little bit into my lunch break as well or something like that. And just slowly tackle every little bit of my shoulder, arm, and how my grip is feeling. Because I know I can hook grip, you know, really nice when I can bend my thumb around like that. Sometimes when I, yeah, sometimes when I massage people and I can only get to here, I know it's not going to be a good deadlift session because my, my, my palm is too thick. My forearm muscles are too, uh, too tight and I can't get into my deadlift technique. So all the little crevices of my life with work and everything, I try to work a little bit here and there. And then when I'm with my baby at night, uh, what I'll do is um, I'll either have her sit right next to me. That way she knows like it's just me and her. And all I do is I roll out like my hips and stuff like that every night the best I can uh, right before my baby goes to sleep. And then me and her, we can just kind of have like this little moment together uh, because I'm foam rolling, but I'm at the same level as her in at her height you know so like she just thinks we're just hanging out you know so i i I try to do two or three things all at the same time um and sometimes that could be kind of hectic but here's the thing if i know i don't have the amount of time uh to loosen up my body then that is a week that i know i have to deload but that is a week that i know that i cannot squat over 600 if my hip is feeling like this and if i do something is going to break or if i massage 20 people this week and I know I didn't get the amount of time to work on my forearms and give it the time to recover as much as I can. Then again, that is also like a deload week or maybe I'm using straps, you know. So I think being conscious of my body and knowing how to loosen it up and being aware of when I am my strongest self uh, really puts it in perspective for my training. So I can be like, this is a bad week. This is going to be a good week. Oh, I'm getting eight hours of sleep this week consistently because my baby is doing this or she's not crying as much anymore. So this week is going to be good. Let's just go ahead and uh, increase the intensity a little bit this week. And then maybe deload during the other weeks that maybe my baby might be crying because her teeth's growing or, you know, things like that, you know? So I think you have to understand you really well. The better you understand Ben, the better you're going to be like, all right, if I know that this is a priority in my life, and this is what I have to do every single day to make my family, my career, and my life good, then within those crevices, how can I also continue to make my hobbies at a high level? Because I want to be this good at powerlifting. So if you can't take away from the work, so you know you have to do it. And the days that you know you can't do the work that it takes to be a high-level powerlifter, then you know, like maybe uh, this year or this next training block, you're not going to be competition ready or you're just maybe you shouldn't compete. You know what I mean? So like it, your life kind of dictates if you're going to be strong, if you're going to be able to do the weights that you're going to do. And some of us, you know, depending on where we go in life, uh, will really dictate that. And I think you know that as well. Right. So lifting has taken like a backseat, but I still try to do it the best I can because I still want to be good at it because of all the people that I've met how much fun I've had with powerlifting. Now, again, it's just a part of me now, you know? So I really appreciate that. I love, I, I resonate with that, that last bit quite a bit. I mean, I take it. Lifting has taken a back seat, you know, and I think for 
a lot of athletes, especially the ones that had made it such a, were so focused in it and then kind of stepped away from it. It's like, there's something that was missing. There's something that's been missing. And I think that that same individual who's willing to, to be that diligent and get good at something is willing, can do it in anything. And so there are times where we look at our, like, I'm not making enough progress in the gym, but you know what? I, I bought a house. I had a kid. I, yeah, like, you know, like geez. I'm doing, <laughs> he's doing, doing a lot of good things ultimately for my life, but it's still like, we look at the gym, like, man, that guy over there, I like, ah, that's, that's the place, you know? And it, it's, it's also <laughs> like, it, you can see it. It's like, oh, I'm lifting. I used to squat 750 and now I'm squatting five, right? And like, well, I'm not in, I'm not in gear or I'm not, you know, like, well, yeah. we're just, but, it, but it's okay, but it's just, it's hard to remember sometimes that it is okay. And just finding the, those, those opportunities in our lives to still be a part of that community that's allowed for relationships and friendships like this, that it, you know, it's, it's worth it to stay, to stay a part of. Otherwise, like, you know, we, we would have never met or, you know, there's, there's plenty yeah, of people exactly. that, that, that I've been able to cross paths with or that, that this sport has allowed, um, a lot of growth to, to exist for, you know, or from, it's just like it, the things that it teaches, the things that it's taught me, and I'm not going to speak for you, but the things that it's taught me, it's just like, if you want to get good at anything, it's going to take time, but it's also going to take, uh, it takes discipline. It takes, uh, it takes a, a certain, a certain lo- love and, and a willingness to just put, good honest work into something and it will it will turn out okay like it's you can make it okay you take the time to eat well and sleep right and lift the way you're supposed to and and be diligent with having good technique and you're going to see people that maybe are lifting more than you now but they you know they're only going to be in it for four years because they're lifting (laughs) heavy they can't keep up right and so it's just like it's okay like you make your gains real fast. I got time. I'm I'm patient, right? And right. I want to do these things. I'm going to do them right. And I think that person that they, it pours over into other areas of their life, and they're able to see a lot of success. But it's not as I don't know. I feel like if for me, it's like the business world. It's hard to see that same level of success or appreciation. You don't. You're not getting an award for anything, right? But if yeah. if I if I was diligent in my training this year and I made it to worlds and I want a gold medal. It's right there. Like I did, I did the work, you know, like yep. It, it's yep. there. Um, versus I think it, it, even in relationships, sometimes it's like I'm putting in work, but I don't really like, I don't see it immediately. It's such a delayed gratification um, that I think can, needs to, it's, it's not as, in my opinion, not as uh, definitive as, as the gym. Yeah, I think we learn a lot of lessons from just lifting weights. Uh, we meet a lot of cool people. You know, we do a lot of cool things. And I think when we take a step away from the platform, because there's a there are other aspects of our lives that need the power lifter in us, but in that that direction now, you know, because again, you're still a power lifter. All the discipline, all the hard work, all the honest work that you truly put into the barbell. You have the process now, so you can apply that to anything. You can apply that discipline to your work. You can apply that same discipline to your relationships. You know, I mean, I know this is kind of funny, but I tell people all the time, like, so what are you really like, especially people in relationships, you know, like you're really good at working out. You're really good at technique, right? So let's apply that to your relationship. 
you know, so this is your girlfriend or this is your boyfriend and this is what they expect of you, right? Well, these are some of the things that they want. So maybe do sets of those. Okay, maybe you're not really a good cook, but you do three days of cooking and four days of going out to eat, right? You're still working on yourself. You're building that little bit of you that you don't like, that you can't do, but it builds your relationship. And when you can apply the same intentions, the same drive into your relationship, like the way that we used to do for the Marvel, you begin to realize that your biggest enemy was just yourself. You know, I don't have to squat 750 pounds now to be happy with me. I can be happy with 500 pounds knowing that if I ever put the intentions back in to powerlifting, like the way that I'm doing with my family, with the way that I'm doing my career, I can always be back there on the IPF stage. And the fact that you can accept this and take a step back shows a lot of growth in you as a person. You know, we always talk about growth as a powerlifter, but forget about that. Let's talk about your growth as a person, because if you grow as a person, the weight on the bar is going to increase. But if you increase the weight on the bar, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a better person. You know, so I always try to always include, you know, the way that you the wisdom and the things that you learn through the gym apply to other aspects of your life, because that's what a true powerlifter is. A true power lifter overcomes their weaknesses and they get stronger. And if you're if you're getting stronger in the gym, but your relationships suck, or if your financials suck, you're not really a better power lifter, right? Because those are weaknesses of yours that you have not overcome. And I think powerlifting teaches us these things. And you and me, we can never ever forget it. You know, even if you were to quit lifting right now, the same lessons that you know right now will continue to live with you for the rest of your life. You know, even if you wanted to stop. Powerlifting doesn't stop for you because it's still in here. You still think back. You still know everything that you do now. You know, 50 years from now, if you wanted to come back, that easy. It's all in here. It's all in your arms. It's all in your legs. All that pain that you and me both felt trying to reach these levels, your body never ever forgets it. You know, so I. It makes me want to like love you and love the sport. Give people hugs <laughs> and like, it, dude. It's it's yeah, dude. it's it's. Good it, stuff, it, right? it, it, it fills you up, man. It really does. And it's, it's nice to talk to someone who, who you can relate with at this, at, at, who's done it, who's, who's lived it, who knows what it feels like to have their legs ripped apart by the, by a squat suit, right? You take off the <laughs> right? squat suit and you're like, Oh man, like I, I'm missing lots of skin and hair right there. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's, or like, you know, in uh, 2015, when I pulled that 600 pounds for the first time, I think my deadlift PR was like 545 or something like that. Damn. And then they put 600 on for me to bump the Russian guy from like third place to fifth. Because if I did that, then the Russian, the Russian team that we're competing against would have dropped place. And then USA would have just been first. I was third. And then another person was in second or something like that. So when I ended up pulling that, that, um, that weight, we had to cut my deadlift suit <laughs> because the deadlift suit was so tight. Oh, and I was shit. bleeding through the side that they cut because the scissor had to cut my skin a little bit in order to get <laughs> under the suit. So you ain't kidding about that pain, you know. The best 600 deadlift I will ever pull because of the <laughs> moment, the time, what it accomplished, what the tone that it set for the whole week. Yeah, that that was a hype moment. And all because of, you know, that pain, that same pain that we feel when we get strong. That that pain, that that desire, that passion, that that willingness to to put yourself out there and 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 it started off from from 
being vulnerable or enough to, 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 to take that first step into the gym and figure out, okay, like I'm going to lift and, and, and I might not enjoy it. I might enjoy it, but you know, I, I want something better for me in my life and, and look where it's led you, man. Like doing like 20 massages in a week, the six massages in a day. I cannot that's imagine rough, <laughs> how that's a div that's pain, man. That that's, yeah, that's in your hands. The body. you don't know. Yeah. You don't know, but your my hands cramp up a lot too. I bet I, I used to do them in, in undergrad. I had a couple clients per day that I would do. And even just like two people a day would like it's wreck rough, your right? hand, yeah. man. <laughs> like, I don't think people understand what a, what a LMT really has to go through in order to keep themselves healthy for exactly. their Exactly. Yes. Because again, when you, when I'm working on you, that's like, just imagine like you're just, again, let's just say you're massaging someone's trap for an hour. Just imagine doing that for a whole hour. Like how messed up do you think your hands and your back and your feet and stuff like that are going to feel? So, you know, being, again, a part of that, again, being a good power lifter um, allowed me to be very disciplined and be very good with my career, you know, because I'm like, all right, well, massaging is just like another workout. It's a workout of my fingers. now. So how can I continue to power lift knowing that every week my hands are going to get wrecked? This is my life now. But at the same time, I still want to power lift. So it's kind of one of those things where I have to accept it, that if I can't loosen up my hands or keep my hands under control, that my strength can only be this much. Can I accept that? Yes. Then I continue to compete. If I say that it's too much and it hurts my ego, then maybe I just need to not compete this year and focus on getting to the point where I can take care of my hands and lift the weights that I want to lift and be happy in both directions, you know. But I truly do think um, powerlifting teaches you a lot of lessons. And when you can apply those same lessons to your life, uh, everything is easy. Like I really think about like public speeches now. You know, I used to be afraid of public speaking. But what are we doing when we squat? You're letting everybody there watch you speak. You're pretty much saying, this is how much I squat. This is how much I work on my technique. This is how good I am at lifting. And everybody's yeah. there watching you and judging you, even the people in the crowd. They're like, oh, I wonder if this lifter can get it or not. Oh, this lifter's got terrible technique. Their knees are going to break one day. You know what I mean? Like everybody's got all of these things. And that's literally what a public speak is, right? Or speech. God. So we put ourselves in the moment all the time. So now when you see the moment, it's not really that scary, right? Like in whatever career that you do, you can be like, oh, this is tough, but I can do it. I can get over this little hump, you know? Your standard of success is, is 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 here. This is what you're willing to accept in all areas of your life, right? It's it's yeah. the world stage. Everything yeah. is this level of of success that you're willing to accept for your own life. And I have one of my really good friends, and and just one he he says like if I can see somebody and by the way that they physically look or the way that they train in the gym, you can see the level, the standard that they're going to have in their own business and their own life, the way that they're going to handle their family, they're going to, they're going to handle, um, you know, business interactions and, and all of these things just by the, just by looking at somebody walk into the gym and lift. It, it, it speaks volumes. And, volumes, and exactly. I would have never, like I, I started learn, trying to learn how to play the violin and in the middle of it, I was like, oh, I like, it's just, it's just like another, it's just like another motor skill, right? It's like, I know how to squat. I, I know how to go up and down and how to do this over here. Like, 
I can get it. It's fine. Like it's it's just like it's just like deadlifting or benching or squatting, right? You just gotta yeah. find the details, find the pattern, and then learn the pattern. And it's That's just it. it it's 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 a beautiful thing, powerlifting. Yeah, it is, man. Yeah. I I tell people all the time, like especially a lot of the people that I coach, not for powerlifting, but just health in general. I don't push it on them, but I always tell them if you can decide to do one powerlifting meet, um, that would make me happy. And you don't ever have to do another powerlifting meet ever again. Uh, because when you compete and you dedicate yourself and you do better than what you think you can do for yourself, all that knowledge that you gain from that one meet is life-changing stuff. And I've had so many people who competed one time in their life and they never, ever competed again. But they applied all of that discipline into their lives now. And they're super good at what they do. And they just realize that this is it. That's all you needed to do to be good at something that you didn't think you could be great at. You know, um, if you just squatted and deadlifted every single week for 12 weeks, who knew that you can go from like 200 pounds to 300 pounds, you know? And for right. most people, that blows their mind. And Apply that to everything else now. Just take yeah. it step by step by step. Your careers, your relationship, and everything will just slowly get better, you know? But I think it comes a lot with the understanding of who we are and what's important, you know? And as you grow, your demeanor and your character will reflect that, you know? And I, I really like that as well. You know, when you go into gyms and stuff like that, you see so many different uh, level lifters, you know, some technical, some strong you know, some people who are just starting in the gym, so they don't really know what they're doing. And you can just kind of see everybody grow into becoming the strongest version of themselves, you know, and we're all on that same path. So, you know, if you're in the gym, in a powerlifting gym, everybody there is the, is just as crazy as you. They all want to <laughs> squat, bench and deadlift. They all want to get strong. They want to break their bodies apart, you know, with all this pain. And then they want to spend all of this time, you know, going out to different states and countries and competing. Like, that's crazy. If you really think about it, why would you do that? Like financially, <laughs> that's kind of a dumb decision sometimes. right? So, you know, when you're at a powerlifting gym and you're training, you know, all of these guys are just as crazy as you. And from that moment on, it already broke the ice and you just learn from everybody, learn from each other and apply it to your lives. I, I I need to take I need to take ownership of that right there because sometimes you know I walk into the gym that I've been at for years now where it's just like a little a little socially awkward like I'm gonna leave people alone like I don't really like I don't really like vibe but it used to be you know you walk into the gym it, it, you know when I was on the A and M team or even on you know yeah. you're, you're in the warm ups for team US like for uh, at an international meet you're with a whole people from all around the world and you guys are even after it's a party, you guys are drinking together, having a good time. Yeah, right. You have more yeah. in common than I think we realize. And I, yeah. I may, I could potentially get in the way of myself sometimes and building some really good relationships where I, not only can I teach others, but others can teach me as well. Right. Not, we can always learn more. And, and there's other people out there that, that are from the newer generation of, of lifters that I could sit down with and maybe yeah impart some knowledge but at the same time they can communicate to me some some new gear stuff some new you know some new equipment some new shirts some new whatever it may be new methods of training that that, that are out there that I, I am not um accessing just because of of maybe a, of some sort of ego or some sort of some sort of fear mm -hmm. but we really do have more in common than than we really think and and yeah. I like that you bring that up
Yeah, man. And like I said, it takes a crazy person to want to put on a suit, knee wraps, go across the world and lift, you know. And I always uh, get along with everybody that's been on like the world teams because, you know, we all know what it took to get to this point. We know that it was hard. We know that we were all broke. We know how the training, the amount of sleep, the amount of stress, uh, the, the life circumstances that we were in during that time. And we all decided to be there at the same time place, same time, representing our country, being the best version of ourselves. I mean, I truly do think uh, that's the fun part about being an athlete that I think a lot of people uh, take for granted. I think it's really good that you can get strong on your own. You can train on your own. If that's just the type of person that you are, you can continue to be solid, you know, uh, in your own solitude, if that is the kind of person that you are. But I also would argue that Everybody that I've ever met through powerlifting is like a good friend of mine. We still talk kind of like what you and me are doing now, even after years. Um, and we keep up with each other, you know, with uh, our lifts and things like that. And that's just something that you cannot get uh, if you didn't truly love the sport. If you didn't truly love what you did and you didn't truly respect the people that you were lifting with, then some of the relationships and some of the conversations that we have like currently right now and even following some of the other people that we used to train with and compete with, uh, you know, it really just adds that actual little family feeling to it. You know, does that make sense? Oh, without a no matter doubt. what, we're family and iron, you know, no matter what. So no I matter really what, me too, man. Before we get off, I have one more question yeah. for you. I want right. to know about the, the quest nutrition gang and how, you ended up getting uh, selected to be part of Team Quest. Oh man! <laughs> so, every, man, that's 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 such a good question because again, new lifters don't even know that statement. You know, because <laughs> ever like generally, if you start in powerlifting, uh, especially like before like 2015, just about everybody wanted to be sponsored or worked with Team Quest, right? Oh yeah. Uh, but I think again when um. When the national champion in in 2012 uh, graduated and he didn't care too much about powerlifting, uh, Sherman Lefford, you know, the, the coach of Team Quest, he knew that, you know, that's just going to be an open weight class. And he saw me, he saw me lift and he sees like the work that I put into myself, no matter what, like he didn't need to coach me. I'm going to squat. I'm going to bench. I'm going to deadlift. I'm going to do the work no matter what anyways, even if you don't coach me. Uh, so I think he really respected that part of me, just the fact that I'm disciplined. I'll listen to him, if, especially if I think like it will make me a better lifter. And from that moment on, I just kept getting better and better and better and better, you know, every time I lift, every time I compete. And right after that, Sherman was like, well, I guess he's part of the team. Let's make him the 67 and a half, you know, and then I try to follow suit with Caleb Williams, you know, the guy that. Uh, who I'm trying to still beat today, but he was first or he was the generation before me in quest. And um, I always just strive to be as good as him uh, and uphold the same values that all of the older quest lifters uh, have. But pretty much from that moment on, after collegiate nationals, uh, Sherman, me and him, we became really close. He saw who I became and I just became part of team quest after that. And I've just been repping them because during that time, I was in a really dark time of my life. Uh, so for somebody who I didn't know 
to reach out their hand and teach me these things that I would have never learned. You know, I would always appreciate that uh, for the rest of my life because I wouldn't be who I am without Team Quest. So, you know, over the last 10 plus years, you know, I've had offers, you know, to drop Quest, to make money, you know, with other supplement companies and things like that. But the thing is, you would have never wanted me as your guy if it wasn't for Quest and Sherman and, you know, all of the lifters that I've met through Team Quest. So that's kind of how I got into it. Uh, I represent Quest no matter what, mainly because that's kind of how I became somebody in powerlifting. Um, and then now I just promote the old school teachings the best way that I can. Because old school teaching is a little hardcore for the newer generation. So I try to make those style of training um, um, still showcase it, but through my numbers on the platform. Because if you know that I'm strong and you know that I do a lot of old school style lifting, like, you know, fives and sevens and things like that, that most people don't do nowadays. Everybody's just hitting heavy singles every week now, you know? Every you see week. what I mean? Yes, That's like dude. a new training style. Like, hey, let's just oh. have a powerlifting meet once a week, right? Let's squat, bench, and yeah. deadlift. Let's destroy our body for three hours. But I keep it old school, and the longevity is there. So there must be something about this old school training. And if you see me lift and you respect me, then I think a lot of people would learn that, oh, he's a part of Team Quest. He learned a lot of these foundational stuff from Sherman Leffer, and this is what keeps him strong, you know, and I hope that people can just follow suit from the example, the longevity and the kind of person that I am. I hope to have Sherman on one day. Hopefully that'd be kind of cool. Yeah, um, that would be cool. <laughs> but uh, dude, I, if you can connect to me, I'd love that. I mean, if you, yeah, I'd right. appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I'll think, talk to him. Sweet. Uh, the, the, for those that don't know Quest, like that, that green shirt, you see someone walk around a meet with that shirt or sit on, stand on that platform. Like it stood for something so big. Like it, yeah. you had the best of the best that were on team quest and just like watching, being able to see like you would like, I, I, like, I look at Tony, right? Tony Cardella. It's like team yeah. quest. You see uh, uh, Scott Dobbins, team quest, James yeah. team. Quest, like the best of the best that yeah, were out right. there. Good guys that were just there to work and, were I think typically for whatever reason usually a little more quiet, little, like little, guys that were a little bit more like to themselves, but like just the discipline that was associated with that group of guys, better than any other group that I had ever seen. And I, I like it was always an aspiration to be Team Quest, <laughs> you know. And it's just yeah. it, it's super cool that that you had that experience with them, and and it's it's we always have those people in our lives or those coaches that are there for us at that time when they didn't, I don't know if they really know that yep. they were there at that time, but they have such a lasting impact for the rest of our lives. It's like, I will never forget Dr. Lightfoot who like was that guy for me in, in the research space. And it was just like people that would were consistently there and oddly like fathers or like just mentors and people that, that you could create a family with. And, and I think that, that's another part about powerlifting that is quite quite a beautiful thing as well. You create this this you said it already family. Yeah. That's it. Well, you thanks, man. Family. Yep. I used to yeah, no family. problem, man. Appreciate you uh, for having me. Of course, man. And so, if I was a new client, 
where can I, if I was interested, I don't know if you're taking new, new athletes, but <laughs> if I was a new athlete, where would I, where would I be able to find you? Nice. So if you're looking for coaching services currently right now, I am one of the coaches, coaching staff for team roar. So you can just look us up on Instagram, team roar. Good stuff. Uh, if you man. want some powerlifting coaching. And then if you want a massage, you can just message me. If you're ever in the Atlanta area, uh, Duluth, you know, Gwinnett County kind of area for Georgia, and you need a guy that lifts weights, that understands the body, uh, hit me up. Uh, Mong Powerlifter, H-M-O-N-G Powerlifter uh, in Instagram, and just hit me up anytime you need. All right. Sweet. I'm going to end the recording. I'm going to talk to you after real quick. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, no problem.